What's up everyone and welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now where we cover how the environment, our society and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm your host Mike DiCibato and today we've got two stories for you. The first is about the growing prominence of online education companies in China and then we have a quick take on fast food companies and their connection to the health of our world. Thanks as always for joining us. Stay tuned. The year of COVID was the year of remote learning for many students. Online education companies helped transform remote learning, and many students now work online using course management platforms like Canvas or Blackboard. But online learning is not new to the pandemic. Countries and communities all over the world have embraced online learning as both a tool to help them prepare for upcoming exams, as well as a way to continue learning for people in their old age. And recently, the industry has seen a number of large IPOs as the boom in digital learning continues throughout the world. And nowhere has that been embraced more emphatically than in China. All the publicly traded education service companies we currently cover are actually based in China. And even ByteDance, the owner of popular video sharing platform TikTok, which is headquartered in Beijing, is hiring 10,000 people for an education arm it is planning to soon open. So. What does that growth mean for the industry in China? Well, you could call me Professor DiCibato today because I'm going to learn you about the subject. And to do that, like any good academic, I had a researcher do everything for me. And this researcher's name is Andrew Young, and he's a colleague of mine, and he has been covering the growth of online education companies in China for us. And I asked him to tell me why online learning has become such big business in China, and he pointed out a rather obvious thing for me, market demand. There's more than 10 million kids who finish high school uh, every year, and they all have to write an entrance exam to get into university. So that is a, a, a massive market. Um, so this after-school um, tutoring, which helps them prepare for that exam, is becoming a big business. And that after-school tutoring has also then filtered down all the way to kindergarten level. So you have after-school classes from what's called K to 12, kindergarten to grade 12. Listeners based in the U.S. might be intimately aware of companies like Apollo Education Group that owns the for-profit school, the University of Phoenix, or Cogswell Education that owns DeVry University, two mega schools that educate hundreds of thousands of students per year and have been mired in controversy around predatory lending and fraud. There have been similar problems with for-profit education companies in Brazil, actually, that have been embroiled in class-action lawsuits that allege they have had false advertising used to entice students to enroll in their universities. The problem started for these companies when it was found that in order to get government loans, they would need to have a lot of people come to their universities. So what they did is they started to up the recruitment dollars and advertising budgets, and they got people in using what was seen as predatory techniques. It's a controversy Chinese companies hope to avoid, but also seem to be slowly moving toward. So we've seen a huge push in the last year or two years in spending on advertising, uh, on recruiting, especially on social media. Um, and uh, so the, the concern there is not that uh, false advertising would lead to class action suit, but would lead to stricter regulation um, to crack down on these platforms that might be falsely advertising or advertising in a misleading way. So what Andrew's doing there is he's using excess spending on recruitment and advertising as a signal for the companies that are doing this that 
they are underinvesting in their product that is providing a good education. In places like the US, for example, high recruitment and admin costs could signal poor student outcomes in the future, and possibly even questions about whether you are an education company that is taking federal funding or a company that just wants bodies in seats. And that's when the civil lawsuits came and the attorney generals cut off the federal aid to some education companies in the US. In China, as Andrew noted, that signal could create a stronger regulatory market for online education companies operating in the region. And the thing is, regulations already embrace education companies in the Chinese market. There are limits, for example, for who can and cannot invest in an education services company. Foreign investors, for example, can put money into higher education companies in China, but they cannot invest in any publicly or privately traded company that is used for, quote, compulsory education or K through 12 if you follow the same school system as the U.S. But now the industry in China has become so prominent that in early March, during China's annual parliamentary meeting known as the Two Sessions Meeting, where China announced its goals for 2021, as well as its next five-year plan for economic development, the industry was highlighted as an important part of China's 14th five-year plan. And along with that, two new regulations that were going to be coming to the market. Firstly, around uh, the chaotic uh, after-school market. Um, in other words, there's going to be even more stringent regulation around who can be an after-school tutor. And the other one is around um, advertising practices or student recruitment practices. So those are going to be more strict going forward. So the first one, the regulation around who can and cannot be an after-school tutor, might mean that the industry becomes much more consolidated because it's much easier to register as a teacher with a large company that has a lot of state resources behind it than a small one that might not have those same resources. For the second part, ensuring that student recruitment practices are done responsibly, this might actually be helpful to ensure the industry doesn't fall into similar traps as its US and Brazilian counterparts. Because from an ESG perspective, these companies, in order to not fall into these risk traps, probably want to be about the effective helping of students and adults to continue their education. In fact, if done well, these companies can help promote the UN Sustainability Goal number 4 that looks to ensure there is inclusive and equitable education for everyone and to promote lifelong learning opportunities for all. But in order to do that, education companies have to, you know, actually focus on quality education services. As I was saying earlier, one way that they can do that is to invest money in the education capacity of the company and not just in recruitment services. And this is something that we would need to watch. So in, in terms of understanding the quality of education products, we can look at certain things. Firstly, as we talked about, it's um, uh, responsible advertising. Um, so we can understand if companies are advertising in a responsible way. And uh, a primary indicator of that can be the spending uh, on advertising. So as we've seen, uh, K-12 to companies are spending uh, in 2018 about 15% of revenues on, on recruiting costs. And now it's around 35%. Um, so you can see that that increased spending might mean more risk. Um, we can also look at, at factors like um, the number of teachers uh, per student uh, or the number of teachers in the workforce. So there has been a trend um, in higher education at least uh, that uh, where there has been a greater administrative base um, than um, a growing administrator, administrator base. 
um, in, in terms of these companies' workforces. Uh, so we can look at the ratio of teachers to, uh, to total staff um, as a proxy for the, the educator-led workforce that we would look for. And not only is that a useful way to avoid ESG risk for a company, it can help ensure it retains its market share. As Andrew noted to me, students are not really long-term customers. They are there for a couple years, and hopefully they then leave in better shape than when they came. This is compounded by the fact that switching from one online school to another, one line education company to another, is pretty easy. You can just literally do it from your computer. So for an online education company to survive over the long term in China or in the U.S., or Brazil or anywhere else, it will likely need to pour its profit back into the resources that are needed for education. And there's an optimistic view of this industry that one can hold, that it allows for more access to education for everyone. Because right now, and this obviously varies from region to region, but a quality education often usually resides where private citizens have the resources to help it thrive. If online education companies operate correctly, there is a possibility that the playing field will at least be leveled to those with a computer and an internet connection. Now, that is nothing to say uh, for the need in a social education, but I can only discuss so much right now. However, if online education companies put the lion's share of their resources toward just the recruitment of students, then as we noted before, the outcome might be vastly different. Most of the largest food companies in the world are fast food companies. Their size controls the type of meat and poultry the agricultural market produces on a large and often how it is produced. Their immense power means that when a fast food company decides to make a change in their purchasing policy, its suppliers move to meet the demand. For example, back in 2013, McDonald's announced it would use only wild Alaskan Pollock, certified as sustainable by the Marine Stewardship Council to make its popular filet fish sandwiches in the U.S. The move immediately shifted the fishing industry toward the Alaskan Pollock with wide-ranging consequences. The same sort of thing happened in 2015 when Chipotle, McDonald's, Subway, and other brands said they would no longer sell poultry that are treated with antibiotics in an effort to combat the rise of anti microbial resistant bacteria that have been posing a threat to global health and food security. Big poultry producers like Tyson and Pilgrim's Pride began to gradually phase out the use of antibiotics in their poultry supply chains, and now the practice is largely unused in the industry. Then again, in 2018, McDonald's became the first major burger chain to commit to reducing the use of antibiotics in cows that are part of its global beef supply chain. Unlike poultry, though, this move has been more difficult to enforce due to the fragmented and complex nature of the beef supply chain, because chickens usually are birthed and slaughtered by the same company. But this is not true of the beef industry that relies on a number of different players from the field to the killing floor. But that hasn't stopped the company Yum Brands, a U.S.-based restaurant company that owns KFC, Taco Bell, and Pizza Brands, to name a few, from telling shareholders recently that it plans to disclose in its next sustainability report information about the potential impact and cost of antimicrobial resistance in its meat products. The announcement came in response to a U.S. shareholder proposal seeking disclosure about antibiotics in meat sold by the company. My colleague S.K. Kim has been researching this move by Yum Brands and other moves by fast food companies, and when I spoke to her, she told me that up until recently, the the industry has largely ignored calls by shareholders and others to address the issue of antibiotic resistance in their beef supply chains. Actually, for the past few years, uh, 
the large ones, especially like McDonald's or um, Domino's Pizza or Yum Brands, they have all been, um, they all received shareholder proposals to do something about this issue. But um, actually, the the proposals have largely largely been uh, rejected. And now all of a sudden they're being accepted. And it's not because there's been newfound pressure put on companies. Shareholders, NGOs, uh, other individuals have been trying to pressure companies to regulate their uh, antibiotic usage in their supply chain for some time. Rather, the change is coming from the market environment that is now surrounding fast food companies. There, There is a growing regulatory push as well as um, public scrutiny in terms of how the companies need to um, address material ESG issues. And that would be part of the reason or the motivation why Young Brands um, has reacted in a way that they're going to do something about the proposals. So what SK is describing there is the classic ESG long-term risk finally coming to the forefront for companies and investors. Because for a while, people have been sounding the alarm regarding how antibiotics are used in our food system. And actually, most of the antibiotics that we do use as a society are utilized in livestock to either maintain health, i.e. disease prevention, or for growth promotion to meet the global demand for meat. For example, livestock use an estimated 75% of all antibiotics that are used in the U.S., 70% in the European Union, 52% in China, and 45% in the U.K., Now governments are finally reacting to this. Both China and the U.S. have since launched new regulations that aim to cut antibiotic use. And the EU has gone even a step further, stating that next year it will ban the routine preventative use of antibiotics in farm animals raised in the region. So Yum! Brands and McDonald's and other fast food companies are really responding to a long-term risk that is finally at the market. Um, It's a challenge, but I think it it actually kind of reflects the importance of the necessity that the restaurant industry needs to altogether needs to address this antibiotic issue in a more holistic and systematic way it's not only it it not only matters to young brands but also um, to other restaurant companies that's kind of a second challenge in terms of like the definition or the scope of the policy we're not very sure how young brands is going to address this issue we will have to see uh, when they dis- when they disclose um, this impact measurement in their sustainability report that they promised to do it by end of um, this year, so that that still remains a little bit unclear. And that's it for the week. I wanted to thank Andrew and SK for joining me to discuss the news with the ESG twist, and I wanted to thank you so much for listening. I always appreciate it. Um, Don't forget to rate and review us. That helps out a lot. And subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I think you can only do that, though, if you are actually on a cell phone. So good luck if you're listening through another device. Thanks, as always, for listening. Stay safe out there, and I will talk to you next week. The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. 
and this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotion or recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or produ product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.